Let me give you a little quiz. Uh, how many of you were either born in a small town or you grew up in a small town? I see some hands. Yeah. Maybe you consider Lincoln a big small town. I don't know. Okay, let me give you a challenge now. Tell somebody around you the name of that small town, all right? So somebody around you, get, go ahead and tell them where that was. Okay, okay, I, I just said the name of the small town, not like your whole life story here. <laughs> so no matter where you're from, you may not have the smallest town in the room because uh, according to a BBC article in 2010 in the U.S. Census, the smallest town in America at that time that was incorporated was Monowee, Nebraska, actually. Huge tourist destination with its one resident... That was the mayor, the clerk, the treasurer, the librarian, and the bartender, all in one. Groundbreaking news came in 2020 when the town exploded, and the census reported two residents in that town. And when the BBC did a little interview, the resident said, if there's another resident here, they must be hiding, because I've never seen them. Turns out the census had just added some data to try and protect their identity. But no matter what town you're from... If it's a big town, small town, all of us wants to do something great, don't we? Someone else came from a small town too, a seemingly insignificant place, somewhere that no one had ever heard of. Whenever you tell them where you're from, they would ask that question right after, where's that, right? And you would try and direct them based on the best known places around them and how to get there. But this person came from an insignificant place and changed the world forever, if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Micah chapter 5, and I'm telling the truth about that. It seems maybe a little odd around Christmas time, but it's actually a promise that's given to us that points to the way that God has fulfilled his promises. In the book of Micah, there's a prophet that's challenging the people of Israel, and he's telling them to turn back to God because they had abandoned God. They desired to follow their own way. They were living in darkness and sin. And because of that, they had been driven to this state of destruction. The enemy forces were closing in. And Micah is giving them a message from God. And this is what it says in Micah chapter 5 verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the, tree, on the cheek. I know you're going, Josh, is weird for Christmas Eve. But it sets up what's going and coming up next. Basically, Micah starts to use a word play in this. It's kind of like if I were to say, hey, uh, show some love, Philadelphia, right? You know what I'm doing. I'm playing on a little word play for that. Well, he's given a new nickname to the daughter of troops, which is another word play, meaning the city of troops, essentially Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you think that you're so powerful, you can do your own thing, you can bank on your power, your troops, that you can just go your own way. Great. Muster up your troops, O daughter of troops. Get your troops ready. You can have it your way. I'll let you live your own way. But if you do, there are consequences. And when he speaks of judge, he's doing another word play. He's speaking of a king. And this would play out, this prophecy would play out, whether that was through either Hezekiah and the way that Assyria came in and destroyed them, or down the road with Zedekiah years later, 100 years later, when they were captured and pulled into slavery in Babylon. Things are not looking good. But the story doesn't stop there. He goes on in Micah chapter 2, 
or chapter 5, verse 2, and he says this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. For from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now it's fascinating here. Because in the first verse, he's speaking from the third person. And then when you get in the second verse, it changes to the second person. And then in the third verse, goes back again to the third person. In fact, if you go look at the ESV translation, it puts verse 2 in quotations. Why? Because God's not only telling them what's going to happen, he's giving a directive. But what's crazy is he's giving a directive to a place, not a people. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often give directives to plots of land, right? Partly because it doesn't obey me. It does what it wants. I don't have that kind of control. Partly because you look kind of crazy when you're talking to a place and telling it what to do. That is, unless that place, that land would even obey you. Who has that kind of power? Colossians chapter 1 tells us that God does. When speaking of Jesus in Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the kind of power that Jesus has. When he speaks a word, it will happen. You can put it in the bank. It's going to happen. God always keeps his promise. Never once has God ever broken a promise. I don't know that we could probably say the same thing, could we? When I was younger, I was shopping with my mom, and we were getting a present from my uncle. And I remember we were getting some cowboy boots. And I thought these boots were awesome. I'm looking at the leather design on it, feeling it. I'm just thinking and wishing, I wish I could have a pair of boots. And we get them home. And I could put both feet in one boot. They're that big. Wrap them up in a box, and we're on the way to their house. And my mom says, now, don't tell your uncle. Well, we got him as a present. And I was like, okay, I won't, right? I'm walking in with this wrapped present. He greets us at the door, and I said, I told my mom I wouldn't tell you about the boots in the box. Like, instantly. I don't even think I got in the house before I was out. Like, but God never breaks his promises. What he says will come true. Always. But what also is so interesting is how specific he is in this promise. Did you see it? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. At the time that he's writing, there's two different towns named Bethlehem. The one that he's speaking of is a town in southern Judah. It's an ancient name, Ephrathah, which is extremely specific. Now, if I'm God and I'm making a promise that something's going to happen in a specific place... I'm choosing as many places that could fit in that category as possible, right? But you, oh Bethlehem Springfield, right? That gives me some better odds. God doesn't need better odds. Or maybe I'd say, oh, you, Bethlehem Lincoln. Because there's 43 Lincolns in the U.S., so, right? There's only one Lincoln. But, you know, that gives us better chances. But God doesn't need better chances. Or at least I would have said, oh, you, Bethlehem. And I wouldn't have put the specific tag to say which Bethlehem. But God is that kind of specific God. There's no guessing in heaven, only perfect plans. And yet, it's so often that it's difficult for us to trust him, isn't it? He never breaks his promises. His plans are specific and they come through. And yet, when things seem out of control or a little too chaotic in our life or they aren't working out the way that we had wished or planned, what do we do? We tend to doubt God. 
When things seem out of control or like God's not working, the reality of this verse says that God is in control and we can trust him. He says something else about this specific place too, though. Do you notice that in verse two? He tells us a little bit about the place that it's too little. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, if I'm taking notes, I'm circling that too little phrase because it's going to come back to us in the book of Matthew. Bethlehem wasn't a big place, about five miles southwest of Jerusalem, lush hills and valleys, kind of about the only thing good it was used for is for herding sheep, right? Not at all like the bustling big town that Bethlehem is today. It's this little insignificant nowhere place that you would drive right by and not even notice. In fact, in Joshua chapter 15, when they're describing the land and they're divvying it out to everyone, guess whose name doesn't even fall on the list? Bethlehem. And this isn't like a top 10 list that it just didn't make. There's over 100 names on this list, but Bethlehem's not listed there. Bethlehem is the runt of the litter. So I wonder, have you ever felt left out or forgotten or insignificant or got picked last? Because if you have, you're starting to understand the feeling that's described in this verse. But God's economy works different than our world's economy. God's value doesn't come from the neighborhood that you're from. God's value doesn't come from your last name or from your job title. It doesn't come from your accomplishments or the car you drive. God's value is based on his economy. Jesus' value wasn't based on the fact that he derived from Mary or Joseph. It wasn't found that he was born uh, in, in the town he was born in, nor where he grew up. Because Jesus was bigger than this. Jesus was God became flesh. His greatness did not come from other people or places. Why? Because he does not get value from other things. He is the one who gives value to other things. He is God in flesh. It says, from you shall come forth from me a ruler in Israel. God has promised a future king, a ruler from a small town that would change the world. So if you want, you can put your finger in Micah chapter 5 and flip over to Matthew chapter 2 and check out what happens. Some seven a hundred years later. It says this, Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. God always keeps his promises. Did you notice where this is? It says Bethlehem of Judea. Judea is the Greek form of the Hebrew Judah. We'll see that again in verse 6. It's the exact place that God has promised. And it says he's born a king, which is odd. I've never really seen people born a king. Maybe they're born a prince or born a future king or born into a royal family, but not born a king. But Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us this king was from days of old, from ancient days. He's always been king and he always will be king. He's the Messiah. And as I'm looking at these two verses in Matthew, if I'm taking notes, I'm circling the kings I see. Because in verse two, I see this Messiah, this king of the Jews. I'm circling that. And then I go back to verse one. I see it says Herod king, kind of wannabe king. 
You would know him as Herod the Great. He was known to be unusually violent. In fact, Matthew chapter three, uh, 2, verse 3 goes on to say, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. And this is the understatement of the century. It's like saying your hair might get a little messed up in a tornado, right? Maybe you've heard that saying, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If Herod ain't happy, people die. Herod had put some of his spouses to death. He had put his kids, his sons to death, his family members to death. Anyone who he saw a threat, he would put to death. And yet, why is Herod frightened? Scholars would tell us at this point that Jesus is maybe 6 to 20 months old. He's scared of a baby. I don't know about you, but I'm not that scared of babies. If a baby came at me, I think I could take it. You know, like, I'm not trying to be all this and that, but I don't think I would lose a battle to a baby, right? Like, I'm I'm pretty confident of that. And every Christmas in our house when I was a little kid, there was going to be a battle with a baby. When the nativity was set up, I thought it was a perfect setting for me to go grab my army toys and my tanks and have a battle with the nativity and everything would get set into the right place and there was a place for everything right you would have to set everything perfect if you had a shepherd like this and Jesus was here you'd have to get it all positioned right right and my army would surround the nativity set and they'd start sneaking up and Mary would be sitting there and all of a sudden she would spring into action the shepherds would take their staff start to fly into action battle would erupt the big one was coming at the end with the angel that would swoop down and then when you least expected it the battle would climax at the end with a surprise from the baby coming up from the manger it was incredible got in trouble maybe a few times for it I don't know but but it was always a good battle and yet we look here and Herod is scared of this baby why Because it's impossible to have two kings ruling in one place. You can't have two kings sitting on the same throne. Whenever that happens, one of them has to go. The same is true in your life too. Two kings can't sit on the throne. Either you'll rule your life or you'll surrender your life to another king. To the true king, to Jesus. But Herod's freaking out. And so in his paranoia, he builds all these different fortresses. One of them is the Herodian. This massive structure, a round structure up on a hillside just outside of Bethlehem. It had a tower over 100 foot tall that he and his family would live in. And then there was courtyards for his guards and for his attendants. They said that the palace spanned hundreds of acres, a couple hundred acres, just massive In fact, what's crazy is as the sun would rise in the east and cast a shadow over the Herodian, it would start to go over the land and over this tiny, insignificant place called Bethlehem. Massive fortress. And what happens? Herod, Matthew chapter 2, verse 4 says, And he assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Look at verse 6. As they quote back to Michael, Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Did you notice the difference in the little word that's found in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6? It doesn't say you are too little. It says by no means least. It's a different wording. What happened? What's taking place? How did Bethlehem somehow now just gain value? 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and now Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, there's a difference. What is that difference? It's because of Jesus. Jesus takes the weak and he makes them strong. Jesus takes the lame and he makes them walk. Jesus takes the outcast and he brings them in. And he does this not so that we could look at ourselves and think ourselves great. He does this so we could experience the wonder and awe and mercy and grace and incredible vastness and goodness of this amazing king so that we would bow in worship of him. Herod's faced with a choice. He can either bow down to the true king that the whole world has waited for or he can continue to try and be the big shot, follow his own plan, be the king himself. Verse seven goes on to say, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too worship him. seems like maybe there's a heart change going on. Herod's trying to find this child to worship. But now he's trying to not just find a location, but when this had arrived, he's trying to find an age. The wise men go and they worship. They leave for a different place, not telling Herod. And then we see Herod's true heart come out. Verse 16, Matthew 2. And when Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And all in the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Say, Josh, what are you doing? It's Christmas Eve. This is gruesome. It's supposed to be a message that makes me all feel warm and fuzzy, right? Not, not, not this picture of Herod taking out babies, but this sweet little baby in a manger. But it gives us the context of the world we live in, doesn't it? The hopelessness that we have if there isn't a rescuer that comes. If there isn't a true and better king, because we need a better king. If we look back in Micah chapter four, one chapter four, we just read when he speaks to the people, he says this to them. Now you, now why do you cry aloud? There is no king in you. Has your counselor perished? What pain seized you like a woman in labor? He's comparing their pain that Israel is experiencing to the pain of labor. Where is your king, he says. I've turned you over to your own desires. You're experiencing the pain of that sin and consequences. But he doesn't leave it there alone. In Micah chapter 5, as we flip back there, in verse 4, he gives them hope. Yes, they'll go into exile. But God will gather the nation back together and give them hope as a nation. But not only for them, hope for the rest of the world. Like a chapter five, verse four says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And they shall dwell secure from now on. Uh, from now on, he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. One will come that's a shepherd, not a powerful king hoping for his own glory that's there to take out others, but one who comes humbly to serve and love those he's pursuing who will give his own life for them so they can have hope and no peace. It kind of reminds me of a little song we often sing this time. 
O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark street shineth an everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. His rule will not be limited to Israel alone. It will be for the whole earth. Verse 5 and 6 of Micah go on to say that this king will provide, uh, he will, they will not have to live in fear because of their king. So the question comes to us, will we surrender to this king? Because the reality is our value is not found in what we can do and accomplish, but in whose we are. We're a child of the king. Josephus will go on to say that Herod, when he died, basically just built himself a nice grave. It's, it's been said that Herod was buried in the Herodian, and since that time, all of his great buildings and fortresses have all crumbled and collapsed, leaving him with nothing. Because a life lived with yourself as king for your own desires on your own efforts leaves us empty with nothing. But a life lived for the true king shows us what true life truly is. So the satisfaction that we find in life won't come from our future accolades or from climbing ladders or promotions or positions or plotus or finally arriving at the place we dream of. Our true value is found not in what we can become, but in when somebody already became for you. Our value is found in Jesus humbling himself. Coming as a king, as a baby, in a manger, in an unknown, forgotten place, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross for our sin in our place, and to raise again, to invite you to be in his royal family. It's the greatest gift you could ever receive on Christmas. A chance to live with the God of the universe based on what he did. And there's nothing you can do to achieve it. All you can do is receive it. It's a gift from the king. By putting your faith and trust in what Jesus has done. Christmas story reminds us that God fulfills his long-awaited promises. He has never broken a promise and he never will. The Christmas story reminds us that Jesus is our true and better king. It's worth it to surrender to the ultimate king. And the Christmas story reminds us that our value is not found in who we are or what we become, but in whose we are and what he became for us.